0: What do you do after a lifetime in food? How do you keep up with technology or transition to different forms of communication and still use your decades of experience and contacts? Bonnie Tandy LeBlanc explains it all. It's on Tip of the Tongue. tip of the tongue a podcast on the nitty grits network where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums this is liz williams we're here today with bonnie tandy LeBlanc. bonnie was a frequent guest on television sharing her expertise on nutritional and healthy eating she's a writer and columnist and speaker Her newsletter, Bite of the Best, is always a good read. Welcome, Bonnie. Thanks
1: for having me, Liz.
0: So, Bonnie, I always want to know how somebody makes their decision that food is something that they want to have a career around. How did you make your decision?
1: Interestingly, I studied it in school. I have degrees in food science and nutrition. I went on for a master's in nutrition and became a registered dietitian. I worked at a few jobs where I used my RD and kept changing jobs until I found the lowest paying job ever and was the happiest (laughs) food editor of a newspaper. And that's an interesting thing, how I ended up being the newspaper food editor, because I literally talked my way into the job. So
0: had they had a food editor already or did you create the job?
1: Kind of both. It was during the 70s when no one really cared. Very few people cared about food. And I was reading the paper after someone suggested they needed someone who knew about food. And I read the paper one day and it was the Wednesday before Halloween. And there was a reproduction of a pumpkin trying to fill the whole page because they didn't have anything to say. And I started reading and it told you how to prepare pumpkin from a fresh pumpkin, you know, how to carve and cook it. And I said, well, I guess they do know something about food. And that was followed by three recipes for canned pumpkin. Oh, my. (laughs) my They do need someone. So I literally I was living in New Haven in Hamden, Connecticut, which is a suburb of New Haven and working in Manhattan. So I was on the train, and when I got to my office in Manhattan, I literally looked at the top of the page, the masthead. This was before cell phones, before answering machines and things, and there was a gentleman's name there. He was right at the top of the masthead. His name was Bob Leaney, and I picked up the phone and said, hello, Mr. Leaney. You don't know me, but you need me my name is bonnie tandy LeBlanc. i'm a registered dietitian with a master's degree in nutrition and i really believe you could use someone who knows about food so he thought about it and he said you know you're right possibly right let me send you to the managing editor so i was from the top down and then the managing editor sent me to the living editor and the living editor called me in and i had an idea for an article and of course, I'd never written before other than college papers. I was teaching college at the time and I was at a different level than the newspaper. And so I wrote, I, I read the newspaper to get their cadence and handed in a, a column, an article and had the second one ready just in case they really liked it. Uh-huh. So they, they took that piece, gave you me. you remember an- what it was, what it was about? As a buffet that you could leave at room temperature. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. That was safe to leave at room temperature for a bit. Of course, I used my nutrition things and said not more than X hours and the time, ta- t- t- everything like that. But literally, I just called, I asked, and I had opened a door that didn't exist. And I ended up being their food editor for a decade.
0: Oh, my. And how often did your column come out?
1: At the height of my being with them, I did the main food story and three columns every week. Oh, okay. That's quite a bit of writing. Yeah. So I got used to, you know, being very prolific. And I also was told no three um, syllable words. I said, carbohydrate has more than three syllables. <laughs> so they kept telling me to dumb it down, dumb it down and to speak at a third grade level. So I felt that I was providing my audience with nutrition. I called it candy-coated nutrition because I didn't just write an article about nutrition. If I was talking about a vegetable, I'd throw in what it gave you and I'd tell you how to, how to keep it so it held on to the nutrients and stuff. But I didn't ever – not ever – I don't think I ever really wrote just a straight nutrition article.
0: Right, right. Did you have to do your own photographs and they photographed the food or did you just have text?
1: That's funny. They had photographs. Well, this was before color photographs, mind you, before Mm -hmm. phones could snap up these gorgeous photos. And I would do a monthly dinner party and everyone knew the photographer came first and the food was photographed before anyone ate anything. And the everybody was hanging out, waiting. The photographer would do his things. He would leave or sometimes stay. And I'd have a dinner party. And I'd write about the dinner parties. And a lot of people told me how much they enjoyed that because it was like unusual ideas. We did a murder mystery one night where I brought in people who didn't really know each other and they were in character and the it was one of the longest dinner parties ever because when the murderer was the murder was solved at about eleven thirty, 30 and everybody could be themselves they didn't know the other people so it went on <laughs> two in the morning now they could be themselves and it was such a fun thing and i just so enjoy doing that on a monthly basis
0: oh wow and so you say you did that for 10 years and then what else did you do? What what sort of, you must have made all sorts of contacts and met all kinds of people.
1: Made contacts, met people, and was taught. One of the things I loved most about this lowest paying job I ever had was that they, PR purse people, who of course were promoting their product, but they taught you they kept you up to date on the science they took you to places so you could see for yourself what was going on and i traveled the world as a food writer and didn't have to pay for the trip so it was a way of learning and getting educated about what was going on in the world hmm. so yeah. midway through my decade at the the register i met a woman her name is Carolyn Wyman, who was a really good writer, but she had very weird food taste. She ate spam, which I uh-huh. would do, and, <laughs> and she ate frozen dinners every night. Between spam and frozen dinner, she ate chocolate chip cookies. So her diet, and she was under 100 pounds. So, oh, why? So one day she came to me and she goes, Let's do a food column. And I said, Are you crazy? Right with you about food? And long story short, we decided that we would review what's new on the supermarket shelves from two points of view hers, the junk food fanatic, Uh -uh. and I always said the correct thing, the registered dietitian. So it was, we were called the Siskel and Ebert of the food pages we were with universal press syndicate and we were syndicated for a quarter century. And after 25 years of writing about products, I said, you know, I'm done. Can we, can we just end on a high note here? And so we wrote about what's new on the grocery store for 25 years. And every PR person in this country knew us Mm -hmm. because we would, they would send us, you know, they were hoping that we would write about them.
0: And so did you write about the food as well as like new products, like new appliances and things like that or
1: gadgets? We were for that hat that I wore. It was what's new on the grocery shelf and we taste tested it. No, oh, okay. so we didn't, we wrote about food items and I would fight to write about something fresh because I got tired of the new cereal with colored marshmallows in it, which my kids knew was junk and they, they would try it and say it was gross because they were used to healthy foods, but it all came to the house. Um, we had, the FedEx man said I was the only person who got FedEx potato chips, <laughs> But so we did that, as I said, for 25 years, and then I pitched another syndicated column and it was called Express, it is called Express Lane Cooking, and it was the world's first daily syndicated food column. Oh, wow. And uh, it was seen at the height of, as it started getting its legs from California to Dubai. It was- and so it was syndicated in newspapers? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I was still with Universal Press. They syndicated my second syndicated column. And it was very interesting. It was like a three by four inch square that told you what ingredients to buy, what the name of the recipe was, um, told you how to do it, what to do if you had more time, and gave you ingredients that you. Didn't have to use, but would change the recipe. So for example, I would say if you had something that was a Mexican dish, the cilantro would be a not so necessary column. Uh So it was a picture of a recipe, what's on hand, what are the necessities, and the necessities were never more than five or six ingredients you can go through the express lane in the supermarket. And it also said what to serve with. So my picture of or or thought about Express Lane Cooking is that it would be on the same page of the newspaper, like it, so people turned to it and knew where to look at it. It was the same shape every time. It was quite unique. And a few papers put it on like the second page of the living section. Um, and people told me they always turn to that to see what's for dinner. And I wrote it in such a way that if you cooked you would get an idea from it. If you didn't cook, you could still prepare it very simply. And it gave you um, what to serve with it too. And that lasted for three years. And sadly, 9-11 was its demise because it was just getting its legs um, I was in many newspapers, and when 9-11 happened, the syndicate had to cut back on many columns, and of course, the brand new ones were the first things that went. Of course, yeah. And um, the newspapers shrunk, and my son, who was living at home, was very happy. Because he could say, oh, phew, no more fast food, Mom. That's what he called fast food. We, made fast food. It was, we could have slow cooking, Mom, make a brisket for me. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. So I feel that a life well lived is if you're doing what you want and what you love. And like you, I love what I'm doing. I love doing anything about food and kept recreating myself because I was a single parent raising two kids on my own and as a freelance food writer.
0: I think that it sounds like you had, you know, the dream job, the kind of things that people always want, but you invented it yourself, which I think is really special. Um you didn't just go to apply for a
1: job and take it. You you created your jobs. So if I, I always went by the saying that if opportunity doesn't knock, build a door. Yeah. Well, and I would build a door do. and figure out how to go through it. For example, one of the things I did was I had a company called Food Speak. And that I was actually sitting with Melanie Young at an event in Orlando, Florida. And we were at, it might've been the Pillsbury Bake Off. And listening to speakers who were really not very good mm-hmm. and Said we should vet speakers for these companies. Why don't we do something like that? We should call it food speak. And we joked about it. And I don't know who's a year later or what, we created a company and we were basically a spokesperson network that people signed up with us, yet we provided suggestions to a food company that needed a spokesperson. So we would not be your agent per se, but General Mills would come and say, we need a new Betty Crocker. And we would go through our stable, reach outside of it, and then give them three or four suggested people set up the interviews for them, then negotiate the contracts. And um, we would get spokesperson gigs um, for people who spoke food.
0: Ah, yeah. So you weren't actually looking for opportunities for your clients um, and, or for the people in your stable. You were waiting for someone to come to you and make the request
1: for that we were reactive really not proactive and we were repre- representing or we've had gigs with some of the top chefs before chefs ca- chefs catapulted into the stardom and we literally we Melanie and I decided that we would break up the company because we both had so many other things in our stable And I decided that I would keep the name in the LLC. And then a client who I had worked with called me, Robin Vitetta Miller, who had quick fix meals on the Food Network. Mm -hmm. And she said, could you help me? And ended up being her agent and manager for more than a decade. Going, being proactive and going after clients for her so we worked together for more than a decade
0: oh wow so you actually witnessed all kinds of changes in the status of food in our lives i think
1: um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what do you think really prompted that that transformation of food from something that you just took for granted or that you bought frozen or that you opened a can. I mean, thinking back on community cookbooks where you're opening a can of soup and adding it to something and putting it in the oven for 30 minutes and then serving it. And many, many newspapers didn't have anything but a, a syndicated column. They wouldn't have had their own food editor or anything like that because somebody like you was providing that for them how did that change happen? And then how do you weather the change with changes in, in newspapers and the development of the internet and food television and whatever? I mean, it, it makes me think about people like, um, let's say Jeremiah Tower, who certainly was on television, but he wasn't the kind of personality that you have today because you see somebody in your living room all the
1: time.
0: I think he was very important.
1: As I actually was at an event in Newport when he was flown in to cook for us and we were at one of the mansions in Newport and he was on the green behind the extended porch that wrapped around and cooking for us. It was like amazing and he was... Just coming into his home at own not home own and this was a group of food editors from the New York Times through the Sacramento Bee being introduced to him, and then everybody wrote about him and that also happened with a lot of other people. There were people who brought us together and always handpicked amazing people to introduce to us that we all wrote about. I remember the an addition were oh, their names are escaping me. It'll come to me. Um, and they were introduced the watermelon feta and mint salad that everybody is still making. Um, right. And it was a combination of high high-powered PR people, because there were some who, when they invited you, you went, because uh-huh. you knew they were bringing in the best of the best, and that, co- along with the start of Food Network, because all of a sudden, people could watch on TV what was, watch on TV, it was entertainment, and then they decided maybe I could do that too, so it wasn't just Julia and Jacques cooking, mm-hmm. and or the Galloping Gourmet, it was all day long, 24 hours a day, learning about food. And I always was amazed at these young kids who just loved watching the Food Network and
0: still
1: do. Right.
0: And I, I think that being able to take photographs from your phone made a difference where people could share what they were eating. And so that became a thing all on its own and then the ability of individuals to give their opinion on things which they didn't have before. I mean, they could have an opinion, but the ability to share that opinion and it could be read by millions up to millions of
1: people, that that was not something that was at anybody's fingertips. Well, I have to share something funny. So when I started a new company, it was called Media Mentor. And Media Mentor was my professional development program where I went and taught PR people how to connect with the media. I could do it. I could say what I was, um, what was right and wrong or how to reach them because I was working for myself. I was not stepping on any toes. And um my sister, who's a graphic artist, created a brochure for me, and one of the things she had is she, she wanted me to count up how many people everything I was doing reached. So I was doing food for Parade Magazine, and Parade Magazine at that time had 36 million people, and I had my syndicated columns and stuff. So anyway, I, um and I wrote had columns in various magazines. So- I counted it up and we came up with a hundred million. I reached a hundred million people at the height of my career and my boys who were always good at getting me right in the knee said, yeah, ma, but who reads it? (laughs) And I always laugh at that because you're right. Okay. So it got into their hands, but did they open it up and read it? And that was funny. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah they keep you grounded don't they absolutely yes but interestingly they're both married with kids and both of them are the shoppers and the cooks for their families well you taught them right (laughs) I never I'm not sure I ever taught they always were at my side and helping Uh and I do this and can I do that and they They don't use recipes other than my cookbooks occasionally, you know, and they just decide to make something. And because they have the knowledge of food, they just cook. Right, right.
0: Well, I would like to change the subject for a moment and talk a little bit about the SoFab Research Center. Oh, let's talk about that. I'm excited. so tell t- tell the story of how you got interested
1: or involved with the research Center. You, Liz. <laughs> I had donated my vast cookbook collection to a university in Connecticut, and they had come and packed it up. And the only thing I said to them is, you can't sell the books and you can't leave them in storage. And some seven years later, I was so annoyed that most of the books were still in storage. I ran into you at the La Dame de Scafier conference in San Antonio, and we started discussing it. And we, um, from that meeting, which was very serendipitous, we got my books moved down to the library that is the repository for all La Dame de Scafier dames, works and papers which I am beyond thrilled about and then I came to New Orleans for a culinary adventure and you did a presentation at the SoFab Museum where so I got more involved at that point point. and so I am thrilled that I'm going to be joining you at the opening of the museum of the library for the museum which is coming up in October.
0: Yes, I'm really, really excited. I just think it was the most serendipitous meeting. We just happened to be sitting next to each other at the table. It was really amazing.
1: <laughs> find that in our world, that's what happens. It's- I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. And that's been my whole life. I sat next to someone who had a gig for one of my clients or who could hire me for this. And it's just the friendliest, friendliest profession you can ever imagine.
0: I I think that's really true. I think that food, people who are interested in food are interested in people. And because you're preparing food for people, you're not preparing it in some abstract way. And it's just that, that sense of meeting other people and talking and sharing the food carries over into other aspects, even when there's no food present.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I don't think I've really ever met many food people I don't like because they're just, they like to break bread, have a glass of wine and enjoy company and and good food.
0: Well, one of the things that I'm really hoping happens is that as, as we grow and we get more and more established that people who are in the food business who don't have an alma mater to leave their papers to, Uh, or there's not a big pull that it go to this place or that place maybe because their culinary school didn't doesn't have an archive or or something like that that they can see us as a neutral place where their papers can live and their collections their whatever it is that they've done and and that we're trying to be as broad as possible. So we have books about foraging and we have books about waste and we have books about the history of whatever kind of thing, like the history of bourbon or, um, it's not just cookbooks. And I think that that's the history of the fork, you know, all of that. I think that that is something that can help us have a real research center so that you've got this, this huge number of things to, to look through. Yes, books, which can be very abstract, but also pamphlets and people's letters and journals and all kinds of other things that people have collected because it's, it's related. And then have a way to research not only the books, but also those, the, those bits of ephemera and then also the actual artifacts themselves.
1: Uh, so well stated. I I so believe that this is going to be, the library is going to be more than you ever could imagine it could be. Because I personally know of a number of people who, Want their books sent somewhere. They want their papers, and there I am going to personally, when once the library opens, make that my goal to reach out to them and let people know that this is a place where they can give their papers and somebody cares about them. The I think my kids are thrilled. Oh, we don't have to deal with all those papers. <laughs> yeah i i understand the way the children
0: feel because i i think my children feel the same way
1: (laughs) i did hold on i started because when i moved out of connecticut into new york city i got rid of and scanned as much as i could but i kept a stack of magazines with articles in it and i decided i will probably keep a dozen of them at some point i'm going to scan those, but keep a dozen of them because I don't think my grandkids will know what a magazine is. Oh, that's true. (laughs) I think the touchy-feely stuff won't exist. Magazines, you know, there are not as many now and there are not the Seven Sisters, which were all the the, uh, good housekeeping and Family Circle and Red Book and McCall's, you know, Banner Homes and Gardens. They're not as, the circulation isn't as big. They're just not going to be around, I don't think, as many, you know, when my grandkids are older.
0: And they definitely don't have the influence that they once did. Oh
1: my goodness, no. Influencers have the influence these days.
0: That's right. That's right. And then it's almost a chore to keep up with them, with the influencers, because A, there's so many of them, and it's always a changing landscape. So it's not as though you can know that so-and-so is going to give you the best information because then soon there's somebody else who eclipses that person. And,
1: uh, it's, and it's hard. me. The thing is you need to decide where that information came from and then verify it because I don't have the confidence in influencers that I did in certain publications. Well, I with a grain of salt and say that's interesting and then go research to see if in fact what they're saying is true
0: right and that that old-fashioned firewall between the people who sold ads and the editorial
1: that just doesn't exist anymore people look at you like what (laughs) yeah no editorial and ads there was a firewall in the newspaper you were not allowed to talk to the advertising department not allowed at all and today the influencers are paid by the advertisers That's right. to promote the products
0: right right it really is it really is it is tough but i guess we we can't talk about what
1: used to be because it's gone okay. and it doesn't matter anymore anyway yeah. Your museum, the SoFab Museum, is going to hold on to that and have it for people to research and discover what it was like. That's right.
0: That's right. And that's that's pretty much what we're what we're hoping for. I mean, I always think about something like the beer bottle. The beer bottle has changed over the years. And then, of course, there's the introduction of the beer can that's in there. And even that has changed. And if you can't see them, if you just see pictures of them, you don't have the same tactile understanding of it as you do if you can actually hold it in your hand. And I think that the idea, for example, of talking about people who who cooked over an open hearth and the hearth was low. It wasn't high the way we cook on a stove today. And you are leaning into this heated fire and you're picking up, say, a cauldron that's hanging there. And it's heavy, but it's low. So you're kind of off balance when you pick it up and you have to be very careful and you move it to the side. And it's probably a cast iron pot. So it's heavy, heavy already before it even has anything in it. And the experience of doing that, if you go to a place that still has one of those kitchens where they actually allow you to try it, that experience is so different from just reading about it. Oh, and awesome. and when you do read about it, it's written in a way that assumes that everybody knows what it's like. So it's, it talks about how heavy it was or it was particularly hot today. It doesn't actually give you the step-by-step instructions of how to do it because that was never written down. That was just something that you learn from person to person. And the idea of having that tactile learning instead of only abstract learning from words that are written down, I think is just um, something that we've got to preserve. And before we started saving all of these things, which, you know, I feel like we're saving the garbage because we're saving packaging, we're saving all kinds of things that you would normally throw away. Um, Before we started to do that, there was no place where you could find that except Kind of eccentric people who might have collected those things.
1: There's a gentleman. I don't know if he still has a museum in Ithaca, New York. Are you familiar with him? He had a package museum. Oh, really? No, I'm not familiar. I, we will talk at another point. See, okay. I can find. Um, and he, for that exact reason, would show you know what what how blah blah was packaged and and show it along the way. And a lot of the companies would go visit to get some ideas. You know, it was a museum that was open, not only to the public, but to manufacturers.
0: Oh, wow. That's very fascinating. Yeah. There's so many people who had these visions and you're so happy that they did it because they were just, you know, swimming upstream. No question about it. It wasn't probably something that everybody said, oh, What a fabulous idea. I'm so glad you did this. Now, after he established it and they saw what the vision was and it was realized, they might have appreciated it. But I will bet you when he first had the idea.
1: Absolutely nuts. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, Bonnie, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's really great. I can't wait to see you on the opening of the Research Center on October the 6th. And I want to meet your family and everything. I think it's just going to be so terrific. So thanks so much.
1: And thanks for having me. And thanks for sitting next to me in San Antonio. That's <laughs> came to fruition. Yeah. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.